You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church. Good morning. Advent, I like to think of Advent as standing on the edge of the, the abyss and looking to into the darkness and taking inventory of the dark. It's, it's important to do that because Christmas is so much brighter when you realize the darkness that God came to when he entered in. Sometimes we want to kind of whitewash over the reality of human experience and existence on planet Earth. But um, all of that being said, even though I do like to stand on the edge of the abyss sometimes and take inventory of the darkness, I was driving along yesterday in my car doing some Christmas errands, and I had my headphones on, and somebody recommended that I listen to Handel's Messiah from front to back. And I kid you not, the joy of the Lord, the anointing, the glory, the, 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 I don't know what you want to call it, but it came into my little decrepit Honda Accord as I was driving down the freeway. And I mean, I wasn't even through the overture and I was just weeping tears. But the lyrics to that, that whole, uh, piece of, well, it's, it's a few pieces strung together, but, uh, Handel takes all of the lyrics straight out of the book of Isaiah, and we're going to dive into Isaiah a little bit today. But I wanted to recommend to you it, that that whatever you call it is got to be the epitome of greatness of human culture. It's it is a stunning work. I want to recommend that to you, and then I also want to make a movie recommendation to you this morning. If you haven't seen The Peanut Butter Falcon yet, you got to see that movie. It will fill your heart with so much goodness and joy in this season. And I just kind of think we, we kind of need little injections like that, don't we? Well, uh, I'm going to begin this morning with a scripture reading. If you have your Bible, if you have your iPhone and you want to follow along, I'm going to start in Romans chapter 5. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 5, and then I'm going to go backwards into the Old Testament, and I'm going to hit Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. So starting in Romans 5, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that. But we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. That's good news for you and I, okay? If you're a believer today in Jesus, you have been filled with the Holy Spirit. That's really important to know that, okay? It's not only important to know it, it's important to acknowledge it and to walk in it, all right? Heading over to Isaiah chapter 9. Go with me. Nevertheless, okay, before I read this, I want to just say this. 
There's a lot of strange words going on in here. I'm going to try to give you a little context a little bit later, but hang with me in the reading. Sometimes when we're reading scripture, we can zone out a little bit, but just hang with me in this, all right? Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her. By the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, in Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil, for you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with justice with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord will perform this. Amen. If you go get in your car and you drive west and you head up into the Appalachian Mountains, and you take a little road called the uh, Blue Ridge Parkway, you're driving along and occasionally you'll come across a sign and the sign says this, Scenic view, scenic overlook, and you're supposed to pull your car off the side of the road, park accordingly, get out of your car, go and stand on the ledge, and what do you do there? You behold the wonder and the glory of being able to see a far way. You can see a far way into the distance, can't you? It does something within us, within our hearts. It creates a sense of majesty. It creates a sense of wonder. It creates a sense of awe. The Squires family, we do this a lot. We get in our car, we go to the mountains, and we, we, we hike a mountain. Okay? We, we, we kind of do it for exercise, but what we really do it for is to get to the top so that we can see a real far away. It does something to us. It energizes us. It gives us life. It gives us encouragement. Okay? You could say that the prophet Isaiah is the scenic view prophet. Isaiah was enabled by God to see very far into the future. All right? Isaiah the prophet could see farther than anyone else in the Old Testament. His view in his his book is full of wonder about the future. It's full of majesty and beauty. And he was enabled by God to see centuries ahead after his own time. To see what God was going to do way down the road in both judgment and in hope. 
and in wrath and mercy. Isaiah had good eyes to see a long way. He saw that God's final word was a word of grace. So this is interesting about Isaiah. Isaiah is either quoted or alluded to in the New Testament more than any other Old Testament book other than Psalms. He had a huge impact on the way the New Testament authors understood Jesus. And more than any other Old Testament prophet, Isaiah sees the advent of God. He sees the coming of his kingdom, of his righteousness, of his governments, and of his dominion. You could say that government was one of the main themes that the prophet Isaiah was not just writing about, but was prophesying into the earth. All right? But here's the thing. Isaiah was a prophet. And prophets are interesting people because they're not so much dealing with the present as they are in the future. Prophets are really irritating because they're not so much dealing with the here and now as they are the over there and then. And sometimes when we read these scriptures, they're a little lost on us, okay? As amazing as Isaiah's prophecies were, when he gave the world these words, those revelations, these glimmers of hope, their reality was somewhere else in the future. When Isaiah said this, when unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, man, that would have been so great for them if that was six months away. But it was really far in the distance. In fact, the time between Isaiah prophesying the coming of God into the earth through Jesus and the time that that was fulfilled was 800 years. Think about that. A hundred years is a mighty long time. 800 years is the better part of a millennium. That's, that's crazy when you really think about that. God's intention is being prophesied through the prophet Isaiah. His heart of hearts, his desire, his final word of grace, the thing that he means to do for the salvation of the world, he gives utterance to it but decides to wait 800 years to fulfill it. I mean, 800 years is older than most countries. It's, it's much older than the United States of America. I'm not sure that when the people of Israel initially heard Isaiah's messianic prophecies of hope, that they were really thinking it would take that long to come to pass. What's interesting is that when you read this book, there are other prophecies too. There's prophecies of judgment. There's prophecies of impending doom coming through the prophet Isaiah. And it's interesting because those, those prophecies didn't take long to fulfill at all. In fact... Isaiah saw with his own eyes the judgment of God upon the northern kingdom of Israel. He saw the northern kingdom of Israel destroyed by the king of Assyria. 
And he saw with his own eyes a great darkness come upon the regions of the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. I want you to just keep that in your mind for a second. Isaiah witnessed with his eyes the king of Assyria bring his armies into the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. These were two tribes of Israel. They were in the northern part of the kingdom. At this point, Israel was divided in two. It was Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Jerusalem was in the south. Zebulun and Naphtali were in the north. And this is where the king of Assyria came in and wreaked havoc on the nation. He destroyed the nation of Israel. He took everyone captive. He destroyed the cities. A great darkness descended upon the land. And Isaiah saw this and the people saw it. They experienced it. Are you with me so far? All right. Some of you are anyways. So, and yet Isaiah saw and proclaimed the coming of God that he would bring shalom. So he's witnessing one thing and he's prophesying another. He's prophesying that God would come and bring with him shalom. You know this word. It's the Hebrew word for peace. And this word does not mean the absence of hostility. This word shalom actually means that when this prince of peace comes, when God comes to his people, comes to the earth, that everything will be working exactly the way it was created to work. That's what the peace of God means. It's different than the peace of man. We just hope that nobody's shooting each other. We just hope that nations aren't at war with each other. It is that. It includes that. But it's so much more than that. It means that everything in created creation is operating the way it was initially created to, the way it was supposed to. Jesus is the prince of that peace. And that's the miracle of Advent this morning, that God came into the world to inaugurate his government of peace and to bring his kingdom reign to the earth. All right? You've heard this before. We know this. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And he came at Christmas time to inaugurate his kingdom in the earth. Do you know this? Are you with me? Okay, this is not something new to us, right? But here's the thing. And, I, and if you're like me, you've thought about this before. In some ways, our world now is not so different as the world was 800 years when Isaiah was initially giving this prophecy. The world currently is not experiencing perpetual shalom, is it? In some ways, the world now is as dark as ever. In some ways, the world is as weary as ever. Man, 2020 has been a weary year, hasn't it? You don't have to be a prophet to realize that shalom has not been prevalent everywhere in the earth all of the time. Amen? In some ways, it's as if nothing has changed at all. Wow. I don't mean to be the bearer of bad news. I'm just saying things are tough, aren't they? Things are tough all over. So as Christians, this is what we have to ask ourselves. How can I have joy 
until the world isn't weary anymore. I mean, as Christians, we know that we are working for shalom in this world. We work and we pray. We work and we walk by faith. This is our vocation. This is, this is our calling. This is who we are as followers of Jesus. We are supposed to bring shalom to every part of our world and to bear light into the darkness. Amen? And yet, as we are working shalom into this world... The Christian never feels completely at home in this world the way that it currently is. Do you ever have a sense of homelessness when you're walking through the world? I know. Amy and I talk about this all the time. You know, it's it's like a low-grade fever. It's just always there. It's like there's something within us in every single human being that is begging for the reign of God to break out everywhere all of the time. I mean, that's like a hardwired innate desire in every single person. I believe this. It's the groaning. It's the aching. It's that thing that we feel that things are not quite the way that they should be. And as Christians, our job is to do our best to bring that shalom into the world. And yet as hard as we do that, things always kind of remain a little off kilter, don't they? If not a lot off kilter. So that's the tension. And that's, that's the tension that begs the question. If our goal is to carry joy and shalom into the midst of a weary world, in a moment where there is so much division and fear and uncertainty, how do we live well in this kind of world? How can we even think about rejoicing? I mean, you know the song, a weary world rejoices. How do we do that now? How do we do that now? If the fullness of God's rule and reign is still in some ways in the future, and it is, it is still somewhat in the future, how do we rejoice while living in the middle of a weary world? That's a serious question. I want to know the answer to it. Sometimes I don't feel like I can get up in the morning. Sometimes I pick up my phone too early in the morning and I read the news and it's totally disheartening. I mean, that just seems to be like a nonstop occurrence. And Christians are not supposed to be people who escape out of the darkness of the world. We're not, we're not a people who are trying to live removed from the reality of this world. But there's something, there's some type of shalom, joy dwelling on the inside of us that so often we're not aware of or connecting to. And the question remains, Lord, how do we have a hope inside us that we can see? How do we have a hope inside us that we can feel? How do we... Touch that hope in a way that actually affects our lives. And I believe this, that the book of Isaiah, the prophecies of Isaiah, these prophecies of messianic hope, what they're really commending us to, what they're really commending us to doing 
is learning how to savor our Savior. Isaiah's pleading with us through, through the ages, 2,800 years ago. This is the time. This is the moment. This is the, this is the age when we as followers of Jesus get the great joy of savoring our Savior more and more and loving our Lord more and more. And by standing in wonder at how great and beautiful Jesus is, I want to highlight something real quick for you. I want to take you back to Isaiah 9 for just a second. Nevertheless, this is starting at the top of of Isaiah 9. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. And when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. This is so interesting. This just blows my mind. This makes me stand in awe and wonder. Do you know that Jesus set up shop in two places on the earth? Geographically speaking, Jesus hung out, did ministry, headquartered in two main places. Do you know what they were? Nazareth and Capernaum. Do you know where they were? Zebulun and Naphtali. Do you know where Nazareth and Capernaum are? They are in the place where a great darkness entered the history of Israel. (laughs) Nazareth and Capernaum are in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. Zebulun and Naphtali are where the king of Assyria brought his army and devastated the nation of Israel. He came into the region of Zebulun and Naphtali and ransacked the nation of Israel and brought its people into utter darkness and exile. And this is the very place, the place of great darkness where the Savior came into the world to bring his kingdom of peace. One king came in on a war horse. One king came in on a manger. Isn't that, isn't that incredibly beautiful? The greatest place of darkness, the place of greatest darkness in the nation of Israel was the very place God showed up. <laughs> That's the stuff we can miss if we don't study scripture. So, so this is interesting to me though. So now we wait for the coming of God still. That's what Advent is. Advent connects the first coming of God with the second coming of God. Did you know this? Did you know in the Nicene Creed... In the last four lines of the Nicene Creed, confessing Christians have been confessing this for 2,000 years, that it is our confession and expectation that the return of the Lord is coming quickly. That's actually a foundation of Christian hope, is the coming of God. Because things are not the way they're supposed to be. And there's only one person who can make things right the way they really should be. 
So we rejoice in the midst of a weary world because with clear eyes, we witness the wonderful, awe-inspiring reality of the gospel. Man, I I mentioned to you that I was listening to Handel's Messiah yesterday, and I realized why I was getting so wrecked. The music is profound. The music is utterly astonishing. But what I was really being impacted by was all of these tenors and these choirs who are, are singing the gospel through this oratorio. And I realized that something in me was resonating because my ears were hearing the gospel. My ears were hearing the hope that doesn't die. There was something on the inside of me that was resonating with this hope and this coming king. You know, the gospel, this is the truth. The gospel is absolutely radical in its claims. Holding the gospel in your heart and meditating on God's work is a way of savoring your savior. The absurd claims of Jesus. Let's talk about those for a second. We need to know what they are and we need to revel in his words. We need to know what Jesus said. We need to know what he claimed about himself. We need to put our hearts into believing that Jesus is the only begotten son of God, fully God, fully man, the express image, the exact representation of God, him gentle and lowly, he of light yoke and easy burden, the God who would die in our stead, not just for us, but for the entire world. Put the full force of your heart into believing that gospel. Because that is the hope that does not disappoint. Listen to what the theologian J.I. Packer says. This is crazy. It's real short. I hope you catch this. He said it this way. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is the truth of the incarnation. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is the truth of the incarnation. Maybe the story is too familiar to us now. Maybe we need to reconsider how wonderful Jesus is and how strange and incredible it is that Almighty God would humble himself to the degree that he did not come on a conquering king, as a conquering king on a war horse, but that he came as a helpless baby. Keeping our awe of Jesus will truly help us walk in joy. I hope you're getting this this morning. That's really important, y'all. That's really important. Our hope and joy is not set on the kingdoms of this world. Dare I say this, that our hope and joy is not dependent on the destiny of any earthly nation or kingdom. Do you know that? Our hope is not set on any earthly nation. So that being the case, we do not tie our hopes and dreams to any merely human leader, to any merely human movement, or to any political party. We tie our hopes and dreams to one person whose kingdom will finally come and cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. 
The reason that Advent is so important to us is because it reminds us that just like the nation of Israel, which was waiting for God to come and bring light into the darkness, in some ways we are still waiting for God. We are citizens of a kingdom that is now and not yet. We are citizens of a kingdom who are working for peace in the earth, but who are also watching and waiting for Jesus to come again. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. Just as a man is appointed to die once and after to face judgment, so also Christ offered once to bear the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who eagerly await him. There's a watching and a waiting. Have you ever thought about this? That, that waiting is a form of suffering? Have you ever thought about that? Think about that for a second. Think about waiting for 800 years after somebody told you that God was going to show up on the scene and make things right. And then not only do you have to wait 800 years, 400 years after that prophecy was spoken, there were other minor prophets who were speaking, but then for 400 years, it was dead silence. Waiting is a form of suffering because waiting means living for a time without the thing that we really desire or need. How many of us have lived a long season of Going without the thing we need or desire. Put your hands up on that one. Have you ever done that? But here's something I've discovered. Behind every unfulfilled desire in my life is really a desire for God. I have found that waiting on God is actually a great gift. Waiting on God doesn't take me backwards, it moves me on. Waiting on God now is different than waiting on God in the Old Testament. Waiting on God in the Old Testament was, oh man, I just, I'm just so glad I wasn't born in that age. Waiting in the tension between the kingdom of God that is now and not yet is not meant to be a punishment to us. It is meant to produce something priceless in us. It's meant to produce hope. Because hope does what? It does not disappoint. The difference between us and the folks who are waiting for Jesus the Messiah to come the first time is that in our waiting, we have the Holy Spirit poured out in our hearts. Let's go back to that scripture in Romans 5. It goes like this. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also rejoice in tribulations, knowing that tribulations produce perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does what? Not disappoint. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts 
by the Holy Spirit who has given it to us. Here is how Jesus coming the first time changed everything. Do you know that? I mean, the world's rough. There's a lot that still has to be set right. There's a shalom that still needs to break forth. And it's, it's going to happen progressively. And then it's going to happen all, of it, all at once, suddenly. But until that final moment, Jesus really did change everything when he came the first time. How? He set suffering on its head. He set suffering on its head. Prior to the inauguration of the kingdom of God, suffering was not something you could really rejoice in. And now it is. Because now we glory in tribulations, right? Hard times don't destroy us. They produce perseverance and character and hope. And hope does not disappoint. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. I know, I know this is true. I know December is hard for many people. I know many of you in here have suffered great loss. You've lost big time. And I in no way mean to diminish grief or pain which we have walked through and carried. None of this sweeps pain and grief and suffering or loss under the rug. The joy the hope, the perseverance that God is establishing within us doesn't deny the hardship that we walk through. It faces it. It faces it with resurrection power. And believers have something that the world is groaning for, the kingdom of God within us. Even if we don't see the fullness of it yet, we are carrying it with us. So what do we learn in our waiting? That hope is the precious treasure of Advent and hope does not disappoint. Let's pray. Wow. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we thank you for a scattered few. Lord, we thank you that you took 12 rascals, you took 70 motley people, and you infiltrated their hearts with a hope that absolutely cannot disappoint. And through that ragtag bunch, the entire world, the epoch of time, the age was set on its head with the thrill of hope brought on by your first advent, Jesus. Lord, I pray for folks that are suffering this morning who are walking through the death of dreams, who are walking through discouragement and loss, people who have unanswered questions, Lord, I ask that their eyes would be open to the thrill of hope that already dwells within them 
as they put all of their hope, all of their heart, set their eyes upon you, Jesus. That we would, as the people of God, savor our Savior more and more. God, fill us. Fill us with a hunger for the gospel. Fill us with a desire to know more about you. Fill us with the desire to be filled with your Holy Spirit more and more every day. And Lord, where we were full on bread in seasons past and we find ourselves hungry and thirsty again, we ask that you would give us fresh bread. We ask that you would give us drinks from your living water. Lord, you say this in your word, that anyone can come to you and drink. And that's what we want to do. That's what we want to do with our lives, Lord. We want to drink from your fountain. We want to drink from your river. We want to drink from your living water on a continual basis, Lord. But sometimes we get distracted by the cares of this world. And our prayer for this year, Lord, is that as this new season of Christmas comes upon us, that our eyes would be open to the wonder of our Savior, our living Lord, the crucified, buried, risen, and exalted Christ. Jesus, we say that to you this morning. You are the Christ. You are the Christ. You are the Lord of our lives. Once more, we submit ourselves to you. Once more, we give our lives to you this morning. In the mighty, matchless name of Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church. 